Hello and welcome to Clock Spinning, the podcast of Magic's history as told card by card. I'm Austin and with me as always is my co-host Connor. Connor, you want to lead our listeners into today's topic? I would love to. So we have a very special episode today, one I'm very excited for. Uh, in celebration of Phyrexia All Will Be One having just come out, we're going to go all the way back in Magic's history to the very first Phyrexians, uh, starting in Magic's second ever expansion, Antiquities, all the way back in 1994. We're going to go card by card all the way through to the end of Magic's first block, Mirage block, um, with the set Weatherlight. Uh, and look at some really old, really strange Phyrexians. I like that we're celebrating Magic's newest set in uh, the most clock-spinning way possible by talking about like, one of the old, some of the oldest cards ever printed. O- oldest and uh, very, very weird ones. Yeah, I'm also realizing we didn't say what our methodology is here. So our methodology is, as Connor said, we're going from Antiquities through Mirage Block, and we're looking at every single card that has the word Phyrexia or Yogmoth anywhere in the flavor text or name or type line. Um, many of these cards have Phyrexian in the type line today. Obviously, they didn't have that back then, um, but we included them because uh, they're cool. Yeah, there are, are a couple of cards at the end that don't have Phyrexia anywhere in the, the name, but they've been errated to be Phyrexians nowadays. And if you can guess what those cards are before we get to them, then good for you. <laughs> mad, mad props. We have a lot of weird, quirky cards coming today, like cards that actually became competitive staples, cards that are part of iconic EDH combos, cards that look like they would be terrible, but actually were widely played. And then uh, obviously, this being clock spinning, there are some true unplayable cards <laughs> mixed in as well. For sure. All right. You can follow along uh, with a list of cards in the show notes. Um, there will be Scryfall search there that links all the cards we're going to talk about. Or if you want, just watch on YouTube. Uh, we'll throw an image up of each card as we talk about it. Uh, and you can also go to clockspinning.com for links to all the show notes and resources we're going to talk about today. All right, Connor, you ready to uh, complete this podcast? Oh, let's do it. All right. Okay, first up, we have Gate to Phyrexia. So with some of these older cards, I'm actually going to read the Oracle text first, and then where it's funny enough, we'll go back and read the actual printed text, because in a lot of cases, with cards this old, there is a, there's a huge delta between the Oracle text today and the printed text, and there's some interesting journeys along the way. Anyway, Gate to Phyrexia, Antiquities, BB, Enchantment, Sacrifice a Creature, Destroy Target Artifact, Activate only during your upkeep, and only once each turn. And then the flavor text, the warm rain of grease on my face immediately made it clear I had entered Phyrexia, Jarsil Diary. Ah, this is such a cool card. Uh, This is a cool card on many levels, but let's start with the really, really weird thing it does. This is one of like two black cards in all of Magic, um, both of which we're going to talk about today, or three black cards in all of Magic that disrupt or damage opponent's artifacts. This is literally like, there's only three of these cards. All of them are coming up in today's episode. Uh, And part of the reason for that weirdness is that every single card in the Antiquities expansion is either an artifact, does something with artifacts, or it's a land that taps for colorless mana to help pay for your artifacts. Antiquities was a small set. I think there's like 94 cards in it. Uh, It was Magic's first kind of mechanical thematic set. So if you're not familiar with early Magic, you have Alpha, Then you have Beta Unlimited, which are essentially just reprints of Alpha. Then you have Arabian Nights, which was designed by Richard Garfield in like a week based on Arabian mythology. And then Antiquities, which is the first set not lead designed by Richard Garfield and the first kind of mechanically themed set. So this set is all about artifacts. And 
it's all about the Brothers War. This is actually the set that introduces the Brothers War, introduces Phyrexia, Urza, Mishra. The whole plot we're going through right now in Magic begins with Antiquities. There are little terms in Alpha, like Urza and Mishra, that the designers of Antiquities keyed into. But all of the lore and plot and world building behind it really begins with Antiquities. And, you know, for our episode, begins with this card, Gate to Phyrexia. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's way too much kind of Phyrexian lore and story for us to unpack in just this one episode. I'm not going to even try to get into a lot of the details here. Uh, and frankly, we'd have to um, read probably about a dozen Magic the Gathering novels to even <laughs> learn, learn this, uh, which we're not going to do for this episode. But I, I love that this very first card we're talking about is introducing this like greasy flavor of Phyrexia as a plane. I'm not totally sure what like what the flavor the connection is supposed to be here between the flavor text and what Gate to Phyrexia does mechanically as a card. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty loose. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know what it means, but it kind of works for me. Yeah, and if you're not looking at the art, like pull it up. It's worth it for a lot of these cards. It's really worth it for this card. It is um it's very old school art, like in terms of the execution, but it's very skillful and it's very thematic and honestly pretty disturbing. There's nothing overtly horrific in this art. There's no gore, there's no, I don't know, tortured bodies or, you know, mangled limbs or any of that stuff. There's just this kind of very organic, muscular cave mm. with pipes and ducts and all kinds of things like it's very it's very mysterious and it, it leaves a lot to your imagination but it also clearly is like unsettling in a way that the phyrexians would build on um for many years to come like this feels like the perfect first phyrexian card in terms of flavor text in terms of its role in the story right this is the gate to phyrexia that mishra opens it starts all of the trouble and the art to me is like a, a great super evocative of what phyrexia would become yeah i mean it's it's literally called the gate to phyrexia couldn't <laughs> couldn't ask for a better card to start with so I guess we should also, um, before we get too much further, uh, if if any of our listeners are, for whatever reason, not familiar with Phyrexia, if they haven't been following the set that just came out or the storyline of magic for the past few decades, <laughs> Phyrexia is uh, basically another plane separate from the main plane of Dominaria where a lot of the action and magic storyline happens. This other plane is now known as Old Phyrexia for uh, reasons that are important to the storyline now, but that we won't really get into with these old cards. Uh, and Phyrexia, way back in Magic's history, was uh, this mechanical plane, sort of like Mirrodin, made up of these nine nested spheres. And it's it's hard, again, without getting really deep into the storyline to figure out exactly what that was meant to look like or <laughs> exactly what that means. Uh, but it's enough to know that it's, it's this sort of mechanical plane. And long ago in Magic's history, 5,000 years or something before the Brothers War, uh, this genius physician in the Thran Empire, which is this sort of uh, ancient, technologically advanced super civilization on Dominaria uh, that has long since disappeared, this genius physician named Yogmoth uh, discovered Phyrexia and took control of it and used it to grow this army of, of biomechanical kind of monstrosities that we know as Phyrexians now. I also want to talk a little bit about the printed text here versus the oracle text and the journey uh, in between. So as I said, the oracle text today is sacrifice a creature, destroy target artifact, activate only during your upkeep and only once each turn. Now the printed text is pretty different. Um, and this is well before Magic had kind of worked out how to write reliable rules text. Like today, Magic's uh, rules and language are almost like a programming language. They're they're very deterministic. They're very carefully structured. Every single word is significant. Every word always means the same thing, regardless of context. They're really, really careful about this stuff. 
that uh, set of innovations had not come about yet. And so a lot of these early cards, there was a lot of dispute about how they were meant to be played. Uh, And it wasn't even clear to wizards themselves how they were really meant to be played. So the printed text of this says, sacrifice one of your creatures during your upkeep to destroy any one artifact. You may not sacrifice a creature that is already on its way to the graveyard. So um, we'll ignore the uh, interesting clarification at the end, but let's just think about the ambiguity of that first sentence. Sacrifice one of your creatures during your upkeep to destroy any one artifact. So can I do this multiple times is one of the first questions. Is it just saying I sacrifice one of my creatures and that destroys any one artifact and I can do that as many times as I want? And actually, what does it mean to sacrifice it during your upkeep? Is that the this at the beginning of my upkeep? Um, most things that happen up in upkeep today happen at the beginning, but this card just kind of says during your upkeep. So what does that mean? Why, why does it work that way? So there's a lot of weirdness and that actually led to some dispute in early magic. I dug up a fun old Usenet thread from 1997 where the sacrifice was actually not optional. That's the other thing that's really weird and ambiguous here is, do I have to do this? It just says sacrifice one of your creatures. It doesn't say may. So does that mean if I have a creature, I have to sacrifice it if there's an artifact to target? For a while, Wizards actually said yes. In around 1997, if you had a creature and if there was an artifact anywhere on the battlefield, you had to sack that creature and destroy that artifact. You had no choice. So lots of like weird dispute over the years about whether you use this multiple times, whether it's mandatory, the timing of it, all this other stuff. And what that's a persistent theme we're going to see with a couple of cards across this episode. It's just the the weirdness and ambiguity of early magic rules. Yeah. Uh, something that's fascinating to me that we'll get into pretty soon here as we see some other cards is how, you know, you, you mentioned that, that nowadays in Magic, the wording is extremely consistent across cards in a way that makes it, you know, generally pretty easy to tell what you can do, what you have to do, when you can do those things. But even across cards within antiquities, within the same set, printed at the same time, presumably designed around the same time, uh, you have these effects that have, you know, that now in the Oracle text, it's clear are operate in the same way mechanically, uh, but are written completely differently. Oh, one other interesting thing before we get to to rating this um, is that all the cards we're going to talk about today are black or artifacts. There are no non-black, non-artifact cards that we're going to talk about. Um, And that was true basically for the entirety of Phyrexia's first run. It was really only with Scars of Mirrodin block that Wizards had what I would call the innovation to say, you know what, we don't, we can have villains that aren't black. We've established that a little bit earlier in Magic. And actually the set is going to work a lot better if all the villains are not black. And I think, for example, if you wanted to print an effect like this today, you could just go put this in red uh, and this would feel totally fine, right? It would feel totally natural to have a red card that sacks creatures to destroy artifacts. It's just Phyrexian's bad, black is bad. So (laughs) Gate to Phyrexia is black, uh, which we're going to see that with a couple of these uh, Antiquities black cards is they're all trying to do things with artifacts. Many of them are things that black isn't really allowed or supposed to do anymore, but the color ply was kind of fungible back then. And there was sort of an idea that Well, if you paid more, any color could do anything, maybe. You know, it's just that some colors did things more or less efficiently. So we can see where the magic's just in general, whether it's rules or mechanical identity, it's gotten a lot more nailed down back then, but this is a a wilder and woolier world. Yeah, it was a a much muddier color pie back then. uh, I do like that the cost here, the cost that you're paying of sacrificing a creature is very much in Black's color identity, but the effect is anything but. Yeah, that's another thing we see a lot in early magic is like the break. If it's if some part of it touches on the color, it's okay to just kind of evade the color pie. And so, yeah, in this case, they just kind of skip over the destroy artifact part. But also there wasn't a lot to go on. There's only 400 cards in magic at this point. So a lot of these lines that now seem crystal clear, like there are only 400 cards. Who knows what black is really capable of? Right. So um, 
what do you think of Gate to Phyrexia as a card? It's probably not a powerhouse, but uh, where do you land on it? Yeah, so we're rating each of these cards on the kind of classic YouTuber scale from S, you know, the best of all possible scores, down through A, B, C, D, E, and then F uh, as the lowest grade. I have this as an S. I don't think it's an unbelievably strong card, barely a playable card today, even in a mono black commander deck that wants to deal with artifacts. But for like flavor punch, for being the first card ever printed that mentions Phyrexia and knocking it out of the park, and for being weird and quirky in this early magic way, I can't go lower than S. This is a super cool card. Yeah. Yeah, I I have it at an S too. I I think I'm biased by the fact fact that our very first card is called gate to phyrexia but just flavor wise and and as a way of of introducing this episode and introducing all these wonderful old cards it's got to be an s all right sounds good to me and one more thing i will plug a zine i ran across on usenet called gate to phyrexia named after this card i'll link the usenet thread that promotes it it's hilarious for how this guy gets told off by mod and then the zine itself is is well worth browsing nice okay we've got uh another very strange card coming up here this is Phyrexian Gremlins. 2B for a 1-1 Phyrexian Gremlin, originally Summon Gremlins. Uh, the Oracle text says, you may choose not to untap Phyrexian Gremlins during your untap step, and you can tap it to tap target artifact. It doesn't untap during its controller's untap step for as long as Phyrexian Gremlins remains tapped. And then I got to read the uh, original printing here as well. Tap Gremlins to tap an artifact. As long as gremlins remain tapped and in play, that artifact does not untap as normal during its controller's untap phase. You may choose not to untap gremlins during your untap phase, which is actually pretty close to... I was going to say, that's not bad. (laughs) They've just sort of reversed the choosing not to untap during your untap step. So that's a pretty good one. Again, this is a really strange, totally artifact-dependent effect uh, appearing in black. You know, this idea of tapping something and keeping it tapped is you know, an effect that's very much associated with blue nowadays, kind of freezing things or stunning them or, you know, holding them in place, keeping them from untapping. So you have that effect here in black, and then it relates to artifacts, uh, which is very strange. Um, But there's actually a a card in Scars of Mirrodin called Rust Tick that does basically the same thing as this, but as a 1-3 artifact creature and with a one mana activation cost. That is a deep cut. Yeah. So so I, I would be... Incredibly amazed if Rust Tick is a reference back to Phyrexian Gremlins, but uh, there is, I guess, at least two cards uh, giving us a precedent for a three mana creature that taps and stays tapped to keep an artifact. Yeah, this card is hilarious. This is another one where you you got to pull up the art. Um, the art is, I think, just the Gremlins from the movie Gremlins, like blatantly the Gremlins from the movie Gremlins. They're kind of like the Gremlins in the movie before they become totally evil. They're just like cavorting and partying and fooling around with a bunch of artifacts like it's it's super um funny it's kind of primitive by modern magic stand okay it's not it's very primitive by modern magic standards but it is it is a very funny uh cheerful piece of art i i love this art so much like they they are just partying on (laughs) this pile of artifacts like you you can't really tell in the art like what any of these artifacts are supposed to be there's a couple of like columns maybe and then uh some some circles with stars in them and some some gears and maybe more columns in the background and it's all on this kind of maybe a chariot thing or something yeah yeah something like that and it's on this like black background with these purple mountains way in the distance and this big purple moon behind that like just all over the place (laughs) zero perspective 
Yeah, it's it's just wonderful. So I spent kind of an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out if any of these things, these artifacts that the gremlins are dancing and partying on were like maybe iconic artifacts from earlier sets, which I guess would be just Arabian Nights and Alpha at this point. No luck with that. I couldn't identify any of the artifacts in this art as being from a specific card. But the artist who did this piece, Amy Weber, who just as an aside has some really fantastic, like awesome art from way back when. Circles like you see in these artifacts that the gremlins are dancing on appear all over her art. Um, some of the pieces she did, admittedly, these are without any circles, include Ankh of Mishra, Time Walk, Ornithopter, wow. Feldegriff, Illusionary Mask, like many mm. all-stars from back in the day. So this is another great piece from her. I just, I love this so much. Yeah, this card is kind of adorable and funny in all kinds of ways. This was uh, Magic's first gremlin and then Magic's only gremlin for... 18 16 years something like that um so there's one here there is there are seven in kaladesh they went all in on gremlins relatively speaking in kaladesh and then there's one other in scars of mirrodin i think the scars of mirrodin one is a callback to this card just because phyrexia appears there they don't appear it's not a phyrexian gremlin it's just a gremlin but i i like the little subtle callback there um to the very first uh phyrexian creature <laughs> ever printed phyrexian gremlins um, this card actually has not always been a gremlin. Um, when they first did one of their first big rounds of creature type cleanups in I think the early 2000s, this got changed from a, a gremlin to simply an oof, uh, which makes sense. Oofs are creatures in early magic that mess with artifacts. They're not super nailed down in terms of their appearance, what they look like. So it's kind of fine that this was an oof. But I love that when they brought uh, Scars out, they brought the gremlin creature type back at that point just for this and one other gremlin. Um, and Scars of Mirrodin, I think that's really wonderful. That is great. And actually, it looks like Phyrexian wasn't even a creature type in Scars of Mirrodin. No, that was uh, that was just, I think, last year that they rolled that out. Right. So uh, maybe they would have been Phyrexian Gremlins. Uh, this is almost, not quite, but this is almost one of those cards whose type line is the same as its uh, name. It's a Phyrexian Gremlin for its Christ. Uh, it's Typeline, and its name is Phyrexian Gremlins, which is also wonderful. Very fun. Uh, and one other kind of wonderful thing about this is this card looks like an absolute dog today. One of the really fun things for this episode has been digging through ancient Usenet posts. Usenet is like internet forums before forums existed. And finding all of these conversations about these terrible seeming old cards where people get really excited. So like Phyrexian Gremlins, uh, there's all these people talking about, for example, using this to turn Winter Orb on and off. So back in the day, artifacts with static abilities turned off um, if they were tapped. And that's mostly disappeared. They errated it into a few things like Winter Orb, where it was very iconic. Uh, and so Winter Orb prevents things from untapping. And so if you use this, you can tap down the Winter Orb ahead of your opponent's untap step. They lose their untap. Then are you allow the Gremlin to untap and with it your land. So you can do some shenanigans. Um, and then there are also lots of talk of combos. I've used that word carefully uh, with another Antiquities card, Artifact Possession, that whenever a enchanted artifact becomes tapped, um, it deals two damage to that artifact's controller. So you can like combo these two terrible <laughs> three mana cards to deal two <laughs> a turn. Got him. Dead turn clock. Uh, so I loved that kind of chatter. It's just fun to see. That is awesome. Connor, I got one more puzzler. What What are these? I know they didn't really know what Phyrexia was yet, but like the heck are gremlins supposed to be in the context of Phyrexia? They don't look uh, that evil. I'm not sure they're really supposed to be anything. Allegedly, according to the uh, fandom page, gremlins inhabit the seventh sphere of phyrexia if you remember there are nine <laughs> sure of them <laughs> yeah that was that was sure. my take sure they do 
<laughs> so the seventh sphere is also known as the punishment sphere. So I guess uh, that's, that's where the gremlins like to be. <laughs> they like to put it. That's where they punish the artifacts. Yeah, they're, they're punishing the artifacts. They're keeping them tapped. The naughty, misbehaving columns um, and wheels of Phyrexia. It's, it's a tough place for them to be. You don't want to end up there. Uh, Connor, where, where do you rate this thing? Uh, so I, I struggled with this one a bit, but I, I give the gremlins a, a B. They're not, I mean, they're, they're adorable and I love their art so much, but this, this card is a real dog. Yeah, I gave it a B as well. Like this card is unplayable in pretty much any context at any era of magic's history, despite my Usenet trawling, but it's, it's super cute and fun. So I, I think a B is, is about right. Let's do it. All right, let's talk about the Priest of Yawgmoth. Priest of Yawgmoth is one and a B for a one-two Phyrexian human cleric. Tap, sack an artifact. Add an amount of black mana equal to the sacrificed artifact's mana value. I'll actually read the uh, printed text now as well. The printed text is tap to add an amount of black mana equal to target artifact's casting cost to your mana pool. This effect is played as an interrupt. Target artifact, which must belong to you, is discarded. This artifact cannot be one that is already on its way to the graveyard, and artifact creatures killed this way may not be regenerated. I love, I love how many rules, how many lines of text are needed to explain uh, things that basically just boil down to sacrifice. Like, I particularly yeah. like which must belong to you and cannot be one that's on its way to the graveyard. I just think those are wonderful. Yeah, very fun details there. Yeah, despite the, like, unprintably confused or, like, un grokable confusion of the printed text. The Oracle text here is like a really cool, clean design. Like you sack an artifact, you add black mana. To me, this is the first card that kind of makes sense in black's color pool, like color pie, like this probably would be a red card today, but it's still, you know, black sacrifices things. Black can make big bursts of mana. It's a cool, clean effect. It, it seems like something black would do is sacrifice things in order to create a short-term gain. You know, his cost and stats are also not the worst, like a two-mana one-two. That's not totally embarrassing for what this does. So I'm surprised this actually hasn't seen a reprint and doesn't see much EDH play. Like, this has a lot of interesting interactions. It's just a cool card. Yeah, I, I was also pretty surprised by the lack of love in EDH. Um, at least when I last checked, this guy appears in about 650 decks, which, I mean, isn't terrible. It's not as bad as a lot of the Kamigawa cards that we've looked at in our set reviews, uh, but it ain't great. And it's a lot less than uh, a very similar card, Soldevi Adnate, uh, which is in 7,000 plus decks and I believe can sacrifice creatures. Uh, yeah, black or artifact creature for the same effect of gaining mana. I mean, I, I like that the Priest of Yawgmoth can, it can basically use your mana rocks or like any kind of big artifact you might have in a black commander deck as a sort of bank for a future turn. He's also really cool with a commander like Trazen the Infinite uh, from the Necron 40k commander deck last year, yeah. which can uh, use the activated abilities of every artifact card in your graveyard. So you can sack into the Priest of Yawgmoth, and then Trazen the Infinite could use them, you know, use any abilities of artifacts that you sack. Like there's cool stuff that you can do with this. And it's a little sad that uh, he's not getting pretty much any love. Yeah, it's weird to me. All I can assume is that Black doesn't have that many artifact synergies, but it feels like an effect that some deck would want. Um, it's basically a unique effect in Black, as you mentioned, Soldevni, Soldevi Adnate. Wow, that is hard to say. That's a tough one. <laughs> is uh, uh, pretty much the only card in Black that does something even remotely similar. And actually, this effect is pretty close to unique in Magic. The only other card that does something sort of similar is Slowbad Iron Goblin from uh, Phyrexia All Will Be One, uh, which is essentially... 
this card in red. It is just this card in red, but it's three mana. It's a three, three, and it can only be used for artifacts. Part of the reason I assume this didn't see any reprints and hasn't seen too many spiritual descendants is that wizards just is nervous of this kind of effect. You know, something that allows you to get big bursts of mana is always sort of dangerous. Um, but I, I'm just really surprised this doesn't see much EDH play. It's got some cool interactions like uh, with Spine of Ishsaw, for example, where Spine of Ishsaw wants to go to your graveyard. So you tap, sack it to the spy- Priest of Yogmoth. You generate seven mana, which is amazing. Uh, and then your Spine of Ishsaw goes to your graveyard, comes back to your hand. Uh, you can use that with um, Mirin's Spy, uh, who is a uh, blue creature from Mirrodin and Besiege that says whenever you cast an artifact spell, you may untap target creature. So you can use this. Sack your Spine of Ishsaw, generate mana, untap the Priest of Yogmoth in response, get back the Spine of Ishsaw, recast it, machine gun the entire board. I mean, it's just some cool things this guy can do. I feel like he deserves more love. Maybe one of us needs to do it. Yeah, maybe. So the Priest of Yogmoth is also our first card that mentions Yogmoth, who we've alluded to. But Yogmoth is the basically the star of the show of the original Phyrexian storyline. So I'm just going to share a little bit about what Yogmoth's deal is to hopefully put some of these cards into a little more story context. What is this guy's deal? <laughs> Let's find out. Like I mentioned earlier, Yogmoth was this preeminent physician in the ancient Thran Empire. And Yogmoth uh, kind of had a thing for experimenting on people and <laughs> other humanoids. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was obsessed with like disease and contagion. So these, you know, are, are not great traits to have in a doctor. So Yogmoth was exiled from the Thran capital, which was called Halcyon, uh, because of these experiments. The Thran did not like that. But eventually he was summoned back after Glacian, who was the Empire's chief artificer, was stabbed by Gix, as a more familiar name, uh, who at the time was actually a human. I learned so much <laughs> researching this episode. Uh, Gix stabbed Glacian with a power stone, and Glacian contracted this seemingly incurable wasting disease, which Yogmoth dubbed Thysis. Thysis turned out to be caused by exposure to power stone radiation, and uh, actually many of the poor subjects in the Thran Empire were also suffering from it because the Thran Empire used power stones to, you know, power their amazing civilization. So Yogmoth's hmm. cure for Thysis was this process that he called phyresis, which essentially involved replacing diseased tissue uh, with mechanical parts. And this worked for Glacian. It worked for other members of the Thran Empire. Uh, and Yogmoth's success made him this superstar in Halcyon. And he, in wrinkles of the storyline that I didn't dive into, he accumulates a lot of power and becomes a very big figure in the Thran Empire. But at some point, Yogmoth convinces this planeswalker named Dyfed to open a portal to Phyrexia, ostensibly so Yogmoth could bring diseased Thran people there to be cured of their thysis. At the time, Phyrexia, you know, it's a separate plane. It had no ruler there for some reason. So Yogmoth bound himself to the core of the plane and became a god. Now, by this point, all the other humanoids that Yog had been experimenting on during his exile came knocking on house, knocking at Halcyon's door, demanding justice and demanding that Yogmoth be punished for all the terrible things he'd done to them. So Yogmoth escapes to Phyrexia through that portal. And over time, he turns the Thran humans that he had brought over into Phyrexia into this army that he now uses to fight the new Thran alliance that's turned against him. So that war destroys Halcyon completely. Glacian, if you'll remember, is a chief artificer. Uh, his wife seals the portal between Dominary and Phyrexia, trapping Yogmoth on the other side. 
Um, and from there, Yogmoth continues to evolve the Phyrexians. He grows this army of machines and monsters, goes around conquering other planes other than Dominaria. He still couldn't get back to his home until 5,000 years later, Mishra comes along and the Brothers' War gets going. Whew, thank you. I'm amazed, <laughs> amazed you internalized all that. Thank you, Connor. Yeah, and one one thing that's interesting, if you consider it from the perspective of someone discovering magic story back then, is all of this detail we just shared was not really accessible, right? Your window in was whatever cards you open in a booster pack. There were no novels. There weren't really magic magazines. There wasn't a magic website. There wasn't like a way to get all this stuff. And so all of the story is just coming through in little bits and pieces across booster packs. And I, I love kind of trying to imagine what it would have been like kind of gradually uncovering um, the story just from little glimpses in the cards. Like you look at Priest of Yogmoth, you clearly get this machine idea. You look at Gate to Phyrexia, you get this kind of organic horror. You look at Phyrexian gremlins, maybe you think they're kind of cute. So you're trying to like piece together a picture of what, what all this <laughs> is They're the nice ones. Yeah, they're the cute ones. I really wonder, and, and something that's still hard to figure out now is how much of that lore existed back when these cards were printed and how much was sort of put onto them later on. I'm not sure when, you know, when all of these story beats came up in the novels. I, uh, this has been one of my great frustrations researching this is I can't find anything that explains where the word Phyrexia came from or how much of this was really decided during Antiquities Block and how much was kind of layered in after the fact. Like, I just can't, I can't, I don't think they had anywhere close to all that plot, but like how much of the link between Yogmoth and Phyrexia even was there? Because there's nothing in these cards that really explicitly links those together. So, and I, I haven't found, unfortunately, any resources that talk about that. So if anyone knows of any, let, let us know. We, we're really curious. Yeah. Whew, Connor, amidst all that, what is your rating on uh, this uh, good old Priest of Yogmoth? Oh, so... The priest is a is a solid A for me. The effect is really interesting and unique, as we discussed. Uh, the art is another win for me. I don't think we really dived into the details here, but I'd I'd summarize uh, this art as C three PO meets H R Geiger meets biotech three piece suit. <laughs> you don't need to look it up. That's a great summary. <laughs> so so if that doesn't do it for you, you could look at the art. But I I think that's a pretty good description. So yeah, he's he's just an A for me. Like actually a playable, interesting card with cool art. I'm a B. I can't really explain why. I guess I just wanted to be stingy with my uh, my S's and A's and B S's and A's. But you know what? I think you're right. I think this is an A. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna bump myself up to an A. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, let's move on to another Yogmoth card. Yogmoth Demon four BB for a six six Phyrexian Demon with flying and first strike. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may sacrifice an artifact. If you don't, tap Yogmoth Demon and it deals two damage to you. Uh, and then the original text on the card, which is pretty interesting, says flying and first strike. Uh, but then during your upkeep, choose one of your artifacts in play and place it in the graveyard or Yogmoth Demon becomes tapped and deals two points of damage to you. Artifact creatures destroyed this way may not be regenerated. I love that little specific re regeneration clause at the end. So this is another card where that original printing raises this may must issue that we were talking about with Gate to Phyrexia, right? It says, during your upkeep, choose one of your artifacts in play and place it in the graveyard, or this becomes tapped. So it's it's unclear there whether that's a choice that you have, whether you want to sacrifice the artifact and use your Yogmoth Demon, or whether you, you want to just take the damage and let it tap. It's, it's not clear from this original wording which of those ways you are supposed to go. Yeah, it, it's actually so unclear that um, I found an old Usenet post where this was um, ruled to be a must effect, um, sort of similarly to uh, the Gate to Phyrexia. They were they were big on the must effects, apparently. Um, this was ruled to be a must effect. And then a bunch of people on Usenet threads over the years were like, why is this a must effect? It doesn't seem like a must effect. And then I, I 
found a place where the rules manager verbatim on Usenet says, I keep reading it as a must, but it isn't. Uh, and at that point, they changed it to be a may. So yeah, just lots of confusion, even very, very early on about how these were meant to be played, even by the people who made the game. Yeah, it looks like there's actually a ruling from uh, 2004 saying specifically, the sacrificing of an artifact is not mandatory. You can choose not to sacrifice an artifact, but will pay the consequences. Hmm. Yeah, lots of other rules confusion about this card, like um, some that is kind of hard to understand from today's perspective. So for example, would preventing the two damage that the demon does to you prevent it from becoming tapped? That was a very common question on Usenet I found. Um, Hmm. Whether Guardian Beast, an artifact saving black card from Alpha can save this thing. Like just for some reason, this card in particular seems to have provoked a lot of confusion. Well, it's it's interesting that if you compare the text on this and Priest of Yawgmoth, which are both from antiquities. They both have effects that in modern Oracle translate to sacrifice an artifact, but they each describe that action differently. So Yogmoth Demon says, choose an artifact and place it in the graveyard. Priest of Yogmoth says, target artifact which must belong to you is discarded. So those are functionally the same effect, but yeah, you look at Yogmoth Demon and it's like, what what does place it in the graveyard mean? Is it being destroyed? Is it dying? Is it being buried to use another uh, you know, obsoleted term? Well later on it says creatures destroyed this way may not be regenerated like even within oh, yeah. the same text and similarly gate to phyrexia says sacrifice to destroy um like there's just this uh um and then yeah priest of yogmoth says the artifact is discarded so we have like three or four verbs we have four separate <laughs> verbs in play for the same action across just three cards and that was true in alpha too this just they they just i guess i i assume the way they thought of it was just like like if you were designing a board game today um, or maybe even more so a board game 20 years ago. Like when you look at Monopoly or something, it's not that concerned with unambiguous rules. It's just kind of like, or if you think of D&D maybe, right? Like D&D isn't that concerned with using the same language everywhere. And I feel like there's something similar going on here where they just weren't thinking of the game in those terms of like, you know, beep, bop, beep, rules, you know, precision. Like it was just, ah, the card explains what it does. Yeah, now now they have a, a beep, bop, beep, rules robot that just <laughs> chores it all out. Well, I think part of part of that too is, you know, if you go back and buy a really old magic product or, or go find a rule book online, like I remember when I was a kid, I found an old Ice Age starter deck. The rules that came with that, which I believe were almost the only rules you could get, were like six pages in a book the size of a magic card. So you have like six pages of five point font to go on in order to understand all yeah. of the rules of the game. And so like, it's no wonder these cards are kind of over explaining and going into all this weird detail because there just wasn't room to explain even as simple how much simpler the game was back then. There's no possibly enough room to explain how the game worked, especially because they didn't actually know how the game worked. Like things like the stack hadn't been invented yet. Right. <laughs> what do you think of Yagmoth Demon's uh, power level? compared to more modern demons. Like this is, you know, absolutely an archetype that we've seen all through Magic's history of a, a big, usually flying demon that has some painful drawback for you as the owner of the card. How do you think Yagmoth Demon stacks up? I see in our notes, we both, both are speculating about what mana cost this could be today because it certainly wouldn't be six. I feel like it could probably be two BB and maybe even one BB, particularly outside a standard set. Like I was trying to think, how far do you push it? It's one of these hard cards. It's like, it's hard to push too far because you like either don't push it enough and it's unplayable or you push it too hard and now it's just really annoying and unfun. Mm-hmm. But I think today you could very safely print this for four and maybe even three. Yeah, I, I feel like this could absolutely be a, a four mana creature today. There was a another big black Phyrexian demon printed in All Will Be One. 
that's a, a four mana six six archfiend of the dross uh, with this crazy drawback that causes you to lose the game when it runs out of oil counters. So I, I think four mana six six is definitely fair by today's standards. Uh, another interesting thing about this card, and actually uh, something similar is true of um, Priest of Yawgmoth, is a lot of Antiquities cards are just like alpha with artifacts. This is something Mark Rosewater talks about in Drive to Work. Um, and this guy is just like Lord of the Pit, but with artifact. He's a big, huge, scary demon. Uh, he can dominate the game, um, but also he must be fed every turn or he hurts you and refuses to fight. Happily, Yawgmoth Demon doesn't hurt you anywhere near as much as Lord of the Pit. I think they realized maybe you didn't need to uh, dome you to for seven like Lord of the pit does um and his body's no slouch like six six flying first strike especially with the first strike is i i don't even know if there's anything in early magic that can tussle with that there might literally be nothing that could win a fight in the air against the against yagmoth demon yeah and actually um based on some very scientific scryfall searching that i did for big old flying black demons this is the only card in this archetype in the whole history of the game that has first strike there are about 70 big demons like this that have been printed in the game. They all have flying. A lot of them have trample. Uh, Yawgmoth Demon is the only one that has first strike. Wow. Wow. That's super interesting. I think black is still allowed first strike today at like a tertiary level, as Mark Rosewater calls it. I, I think a lot of the reason for that is they don't really like putting first strike on really big things like this. Like a 6-6 six, six is already kind of hard to kill. So first strike just makes it sort of impossible to, to deal with in a lot of circumstances, especially back then when a lot of the removal, certainly all the black removal couldn't hit black creatures. So this guy is like really a pain in the butt to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just point out this is another combo with Spine of Ishsa, which is uh, one of my favorite cards. So I feel obligated to point this out. <laughs> there you go. Anything, anything having to do with artifacts in this episode is going to bring up the Spine, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and one other little note on this is this is actually legal and modern. It got a printing in ninth edition. Way less cool. Really objectively good art, but not as like unbelievably grotesque and freaky and cool as this art is. Sadly, I have MTG top eight shows zero appearances in the history of modern. So somebody somebody go change that. Try to try to play Yawgmoth Demon for the memes. Go figure it out. I'm really glad you mentioned the ninth edition printing, though, because if you look really closely at the art there, which is by Pete Venters, you can see the Phyrexian mana symbol which is the Greek letter phi, on the demon's head. And this is a card that was printed, I think, in 2005. So five years before the Phyrexians kind of got a big makeover in Scars of Mirrodin. Um, So that was a fascinating little tidbit. And he, I also feel like the ninth edition art has much more of kind of a new Phyrexia vibe than most of the Phyrexians that had come before it. That is cool. I also went back and checked to see if there's anything that can beat this in a fight in the air. Uh, there is only one other card. It is, of course, I don't know why I didn't think of this, Lord of the Pit. So the only thing that can beat the demon is the big demon daddy himself, Lord of the Pit. There you go. So how would you rate Yawgmoth Demon? I have it as an A. I think it's a super cool card. It's not all the way to S tier for me, partially because the art is, is good and freaky, but I, I don't know, it just doesn't connect with me at an emotional level besides horror. And it's just, you know, it's a demon. You know, there's a lot of these guys throughout Magic's history, so it doesn't quite do enough to get to an S for me. That's true. And I, he's not even the first demon. Uh, I had him at, at an S, but... Oh, stick to your guns. Why is he an S, Connor? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it was just kind of an instinctive S for me. I think part of it was discovering that the ninth edition version of this card has the Phyrexian mana symbol five years before that was a thing in the game. Though actually, I, I did an even deeper dive on that and found that there <laughs> the Phi symbol actually appears on the 1998 card Oppression from Urza's Saga, which shows Whoa. Gix with Whoa, the symbol yes. on his head. So wow. you can go way back 
way back to see this connection between the Phyrexians and this mana symbol, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good one. But I don't know if Yawgmoth Demon really deserves credit for that. So I, I'm going to come down to an A. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. He was so close. All right. That's it for Antiquities. Let's move on to Alliances and talk about Phyrexian Boon. Phyrexian Boon is two and a B for an enchantment aura, enchant creature. As long as enchanted creature is black, it gets plus two, plus one. Otherwise, it gets minus one, minus two. Uh, this is actually the first card we've talked about where the oracle and printed text are exactly the same, which is pretty cool. Oh, and the flavor text. Dagson should have paid attention to the lessons of Phyrexia before attempting to create a mechanical utopia. Soreen Relic Bane, Soldevi Heretic. Okay, I I read the flavor text last, so I kind of want to start with it, which is like, ah, uh, this is my least favorite type of magic flavor text where it's trying to explain like 19 things in 19 words. <laughs> like it's super, to me, it's super heavy handed and kind of uh, irritating. Another interesting thing about this card before I get into reviewing it on the merits is this is one of the, an example of something weird they used to do back in like alliances and homelands and stuff where this was printed with two separate arts. I don't know why they only did this with commons. I think just to like spice up booster packs a little bit, but there's a second Phyrexian boon that actually forms a pair uh, with the art between this and the other card. They're both by Mark Tadine. They're both super freaky. Um, in the one whose flavor text I read, there's like some kind of pink tusky arm seizing someone who looks like they're in a lot of trouble. Uh, and in the other half, there's like, there's another way to put it, but a pink butt with arms. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's the only way to describe it. <laughs> giving giving a blue tentacular blessing to somebody. And the flavor mm. text on that one is, Phyrexia's touch is painful to all but the blackest of hearts. Gerda Egg's daughter, Archmage of the Unseen. You're getting some tough names in your flavor text. This <laughs> I was just going to say, I promise I know how to pronounce things, but I feel like this episode <laughs> is challenging me. It is. <laughs> Pronunciation. Soldevi Adnates. I mean, come on. Whew. Okay, that was a lot about the art and the flavor text. Um, the card itself here, it's not a like showstopper. I think it's fun design space, though. I like the design space of black card that helps black creatures and hurts all others that feels very uh like in the pocket for black and it feels right in the pocket for phyrexians right their boon helps you if you already wanted their number otherwise a phyrexian boon is the last kind of assistance uh, that you want to get this card is actually uh one of about eight cards that do something along these lines some other interesting examples are sarah's boon um for planar chaos which was a set in time spiral block that messed with color sarah's boon is this exact card but for white so if it's a white creature it gets plus two plus one plus two otherwise minus two minus one um i like that card because it actually kind of feels like something white should do like giving something minus one is not very white but preferencing your own color is something white and black do in a way other colors don't do so i think that's cool and then there's lots of other variants on this, like Gift of Fangs from uh, Crimson Vow is boost something if it's a vampire. Otherwise, it uh, gives it minus two, minus two. Um, Nyx Infusion does something similar, but for enchantment creatures. Clutch of Undeath from Scourge gives plus three, plus three to zombies and minus three, minus three to other things. So there's a couple other interesting cards over the years that play with this design space, uh, which I'll link in the show notes. So I, I like this card for opening a kind of interesting uh, little corner of magic design. I, I like that also that the uh, the two variant arts for this card. I, I can't say I love either, either piece that much. <laughs> They're hard to love. But, but I do really enjoy that each of those, each of the arts sort of shows an aspect of what the card does mechanically. So in the butt face printing, for lack of a better description, 
<laughs> someone who apparently has the blackest of hearts is getting the plus two plus one treatment. And in the multi-eyed grabber printing, someone else is getting the minus one minus two side of things. So the, the art is reflecting kind of the two aspects of this card in a in a way I enjoy. Yeah, and now you mentioned it, it's kind of odd because the creature who's getting the apparent boon looks like a white creature. She looks like some kind of cleric. Um, and the creature who's getting the negative boon kind of just looks like a mercenary adventurer so it's kind of odd to me you know how each of those characters were depicted like she if she's a if she's a black creature she's hiding it very well yeah i guess she's a sleeper agent maybe there you, huh eh, eh, i see what mm-hmm. you did there mm-hmm. uh-huh. um yeah mark Tadine and like disgusting phyrexian things are like a match made in heaven like he was born he did the priest of yogmoth we talked about earlier i think he has a couple others coming later and he's he's just perfectly suited for phyrexia so how how do you rate the boon? I, I'm tempted to give it two ratings for the <laughs> two arts, but yeah, let's give it two separate ratings. So I would give um I would give the arm side a B because I can ignore the art a little more there and recognize the interesting design space. Uh, I would give the butt face side like an F because I just really don't want to look at it. I, I don't want it in a deck or a collection or anywhere. That hurts. I find the hands more disturbing on the butt face side because they're mm-hmm. sort of butt hands too. <laughs> I, I kind of like that, though. A B for one and a D in the other for the other. Maybe we just land on a C then for the card overall. Yeah, it feels like a, it's about a C card. It's definitely not a you know game changer. Let's go with C. Okay, next up, uh, we're moving out of black cards and into some artifacts for a little while. Uh, we've got Phyrexian Devourer. This is a six mana, one, one artifact creature, Phyrexian Construct. When Phyrexian Devourer's power is seven or greater, sacrifice it. And you can exile the top card of your library to put X plus one plus one counters on Phyrexian Devourer, where X is the exiled card's mana value. Uh, And this is another one where I think the original printing is worth reading. The original card says, if Phyrexian Devourer's power is seven or greater, bury it. Zero. Remove the top card of your library from the game to put a plus X plus X counter on Phyrexian Devourer, where X (laughs) is equal to that card's casting cost. So I I love that it's just one big plus X plus X counter. (laughs) It's so so great. Yeah, back then. But this is is a really interesting card to me, uh, both mechanically and what it does and sort of what it represents about artifact creatures at this time. So the sort of vanilla intent of this card is basically an artifact creature that can at most become a six mana six six if you exile a few cards from the top of your deck to grow it up that big and if it gets bigger than than that you have to sacrifice it uh and that makes me think of a a really interesting point that uh scaff elias who worked on magic back in the day uh raised in a drive to work episode that in the early days of magic artifacts were supposed to either do something that other card types don't do or they're supposed to do things that other card types can do, but in sort of a strictly worse way than whatever the worst color is capable of doing. So green, for example, at the time might have been allowed to have a six mana creature with six power by default, like Craw Worm, which was a six mana six four. But a six mana artifact creature like this should have to kind of work for that six power and then I guess die if it ever exceeds it <laughs> to keep things fair. Uh, so it's just a, a, a super interesting kind of peek into the balance of artifacts and balance of artifact creatures back then when now, you know, artifact creatures are more artifact is just sort of a, a super type for uh, a creature that can even have a color. It doesn't even need to be colorless anymore. Yeah. This card is, uh, I think my favorite card of the 
episode so far, just in terms of its mechanical interactions. Like I feel like Priest of Yawgmoth implies a lot of combos, but this thing actually straight up enables a bunch of combos. I think that's why this sees play in about 2000 EDH rec decks, which isn't a huge number, but it's a pretty good number for a six mana one one from alliances. That's that's not too bad a record. Uh, and it's all about, of course, that zero mana ability because it does all kinds of cool things. Um, some of the interactions this thing enables. Um, one is this is really fun with any commander or card who does things with activated abilities. So for example, Experiment Kraj, who takes on the activated abilities of other permanents. Necrotic Ooze, who takes on activated abilities from Graveyard. Trazen the Infinite, Mirror Welder, all of these cards that are capable of borrowing activated abilities, they don't have Phyrexian Devourer's seven or greater clause. So they can just activate the zero clause as many times as they want. And they can be a 70-70 or whatever. It's got another interaction with uh, Leilia, who wants to see you exile things. Interesting interaction with Gerard, who wants to sacrifice a big creature. Again, the power seven or greater thing here is a triggered ability. So you can just keep exile and exiling from the top of your library, keep growing the devourer, and then sacrifice it to Gerard, fling it, do any number of other things that care about the size of a sacrificed creature or care about the size of a creature in general. And then, you know, if all else fails, you can just use this, for example, as contemporary people did with Sylvan Library to just eat cards off the top of your deck in order to find the card you're looking for. Like this card is, is to me a classic magic card and that it doesn't do anything that complicated. There's only like two abilities on this card. They're both very easy to understand, but the interactions it enables 20 years after it's printed are fascinating. So I just love this card. Super cool. I I love the idea of using this in a, a commander deck, which would actually be kind of expensive to do because this is on the reserved list. Boo. <laughs> okay, it's not that bad. 16 bucks. <laughs> That's doable. Oh, everyone snap them up. <laughs> yeah, try it out. One uh, little interesting, we keep talking about rules ambiguity. There's a slight rules ambiguity here. I'd argue it's not much where if Phyrexian Devourer's power is seven or greater, bury it. So what does the if mean there? Uh, Today, that would be and is a when. Um, So it's a triggered ability, right? It goes on the stack um, when that condition is met. You could also maybe read it as like a state-based action, not that they had those back then. That is, if at any time it's seven or greater, bury it. And this matters because can you activate the zero ability just once? Or you can activate it any number of times as long as you don't let the trigger for seven resolve. Well, from around 1999 to 2011, actually, Wizards decided no fun is allowed and they actually stuck the seven power greater clause into the zero ability as well. So when you activated the zero, if its power was seven or greater as part of resolving the ability, it would die as part of the resolution of the activation, which I think is... One of the most joyless things I've ever heard. It's not like not like this card is overpowered <laughs> or needed some kind of adjustment. Um, and it seems players agreed. The first thread I could find about this on Usenet was titled, I don't F star, 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 believe it. And I, I don't know why Wizards would have done that. It's just That's just a joyless move. It's like a killing Whoa. Christmas or like canceling Christmas move. It really is. I because I I mean it's it's not like it, it's not like it's overpowered on its own. You gotta figure it out a little bit. And that's, that's Yeah, this isn't like it. Time Vault or something, right? right? Where it's inherently near broken. It's like if you break Phyrexian Devourer, you deserve it. Amen. This is uh this is another Mark Tadine art too, just back to back here. And this one I love. Uh Phyrexian Boon I was I was a little more mixed on. But this this is awesome. It it's hard to describe exactly what's going on here but at the same time it's very simple the devourer is uh essentially a big cone uh with uh <laughs> with a, a mouth and wheels kind of furnace like maw i would say yeah a furnace like maw i love that 
Uh, and it's it's trundling along this wasteland against a, a backdrop that might be uh, a smoky ash-filled sky or might be a cave. It's not entirely clear. And it's it's devouring whatever's in its path. It looks really cool. It has this almost comic book style vibe to it. It reminded me of Nausicaa of the Valley That's of the Wind. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's super Nausicaa. Yeah, it's yeah. like the, the ohms or something. Just, just really cool, distinctive art. Like really, really eye-catching. Yeah, it's it's a great piece. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I mean, I should email Mark Tadine if you if you can do such if one can do such thing to ask because I feel like this has got to be a, a Nausicaa tribute, right? Like the kind of organic nature of the devourer, the weird like. I mean, if you think of the giant trees in Nausicaa, like this 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 has got to be a tribute. Um, but yeah, it's a super cool atmospheric piece and it's mysterious, right? It like poses more questions than it answers. It's a great piece of world building. So I won't hide the ball. This this is an S tier for me. Oh yeah, this is an easy S tier. It's, it's cool. It's iconic. It's Phyrexia-ish. It's got combo potential. It shows up in EDH. It's been talked about for like 27 years. This is an amazing card. I'm tempted to pick one up. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Wizards' uh, weirdly second attempt uh, at a Phyrexian gate or portal. <laughs> Phyrexian portal. Um, three mana for a artifact. Uh, and we are still in alliances here. And then it's got an activated ability. Three if your library has 10 or more cards in it, target opponent looks at the top 10 cards of your library and separates them into two face-down piles. Exile one of those piles. Search the other pile for a card, put it into your hand, then shuffle the rest of that pile into your library. Whew. Okay, lots of words here, but basically this is like a really weird proto-factor fiction where you take 10 cards, um, your opponent splits them into two face-down piles, you pick one pile to take a card out of, the other one disappears forever. This is actually the first Choose Some Piles card ever printed. Uh, and so for that alone, I got to have a bit of a soft spot for this. Factor Fiction to me is one of the most iconic magic cards of all time. It's certainly one of the most iconic cube and competitive magic cards of all time. Um, and so anything that helped bring Factor Fiction into existence is a cool card in my book. This mm-hmm. card is um, not that cool. Uh, there's a lot of problems with it. It's uh, it's very expensive. Exiling 10 cards is a pretty real cost. Like in a 60 card format, you don't get that many activations on this thing before you're out of deck. And even in EDH, honestly, 10 cards is like not that much. Um, but I think the most damning thing about this is like, there's not really any great synergies with this card, at least that I can think of. The only thing I could think of is there's a handful of blue and red cards over the years um, that care about the number of instants and sorceries you have in exile. Uh, so things like Crackling Drake, Beacon Bolt, Ral is it Viceroy, um, Serpentine Curve. Like there's a, a very small number, like eight to 10 um, blue and red things that care about instants and sorceries. So you could kind of do something with this. Like <laughs> it's a way to exile a lot of instants and sorceries, but I don't know, that's a stretch. So while I like that this card invents the idea of separating things into piles and kind of invents the idea of mind games. I mean, not really. Camouflage and Alpha plays mind games, but I like this card for helping break open that design space. The card itself is um, not not that great. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm on record as not loving factor fiction type effects. I feel like you're one of like the 4% of Magic players who don't love factor fiction. I don't understand it. That's probably true. I, th- I think it's it's hard for me to articulate exactly why. I think I just, I don't, enjoy being on the other end of the the mini game that it creates uh and and choosing the piles and i i like that even less with phyrexian portal here because it's 10 cards 
I mean, fact, a lot of, that is yeah, a, that's a lot great of point. It's just a lot of decisions. It's going to slow the game way down. It is. I, and I, you know, I imagine activating this ability, uh, which by the way, costs you six mana to be able to do for the first time in an EDH game in the nightmare scenario. And then the rest of the table <laughs> is sitting there for five minutes <laughs> while one person thinks about how to divvy up uh, 10 cards into two piles. And then the other person thinks about which pile to pick. And then like, which card to take. And then which card to take for the oh, pile they take. <laughs> you're right. You're right. So you've got uh, opponent makes the piles and then you have to choose the pile and then you have to choose the card from the pile. <laughs> that is not a fun time for me. Uh, yeah. All right. Fair enough. That's like six mana uh, and three layers of analysis paralysis to get w- basically like one pretty good card out of the top 10 on your library. <laughs> right. Again, for six mana on that first activation and three mana <laughs> for every activation after that. All right. You're talking me down on this thing. Yeah, that's that's pretty slow. Uh, one, I also one don't really like the art here. I feel like the art here is it's sort of technically accomplished, but I don't know. It's just sort of it doesn't feel Phyrexian to me. It's kind of hard to tell what's going on. The mechanical tie in between the name Phyrexian portal and the art and then especially the name and the mechanic is like non-existent for me. I don't really understand why a Phyrexian portal. Do- I guess you're like gaining wisdom but it costs your sanity i don't know like this card just doesn't it doesn't sing in the way that say um i don't know phyrexian demon phyrexian devourer even phyrexian boon like all of those cards i feel like kind of sang from a mechanics plus flavor standpoint whereas this thing just feels like a miss to me yeah yeah that's that i'm glad you mentioned that because it's another thing i don't like <laughs> the 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 art i don't mind on its own like the the portal is sort of this this standalone contraption which is a little bit awkward it's confusing yeah yeah it almost looks like a like really horrific like dentist's chair light (laughs) absolutely (laughs) except this one instead of illuminating your mouth sucks you into phyrexia so i I don't completely hate the art on its own but it doesn't like i don't see the connection with the effect at all and it it hurt my brain too much to try to figure out what the flavor tie-in was between this portal and separating cards into piles well and um the phyrexian portal as i understand in the plot is like the thing the phyrexians come through to invade dominaria and again that's like just what does that have to do with with what this card does or (laughs) what like it just doesn't make a lot of sense yeah um i think there's a reason that they took another crack at this uh in brothers war um with portal to phyrexia right it's like exactly the same name just inverted and that one feels like a portal to phyrexia it like kills three of your opponent's things it reanimates things it turns them into phyrexians like that's a slam dunk this thing is i think a pretty big swing and a miss yeah yeah i'm glad i feel like on the the third time we we had a gate to phyrexia we had the portal now with portal to phyrexia we've we've gotten there it's what it needed to be all along so I had an A. I don't know. I think that was. I think I was actually rating Factor Fiction in my mind. I was giving Factor Fiction an, an S and then subtracting one grade. So yes. I, I think this is actually like a D. Wow. I I had it as a C, but I am happy to come down to a D to meet you there. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I I think the really the only thing this card has going for it is a pretty decent piece of Pete Venter's art and using the word pile for the first time. Yep. All right. Let's move on from that steaming pile to Phyrexian <laughs> War Beast. This is a three mana, three, four artifact creature, Phyrexian Beast. Uh, when Phyrexian War Beast leaves the battlefield, sacrifice a land, and Phyrexian War Beast deals one damage to you. And the original printing's more or less the same. I mean, a three mana, three, four 
back then is a real walloping compared to just about anything, especially on an artifact creature where it can be any color of mana that you're paying. Sacrificing a land when it leaves play is is painful, but whatever deck you would be running this in back in the day would you know, probably be pretty low value, uh, maybe a white weenie type deck, and would not care about losing the land that much anyway. So I, this this card seems like uh, kind of a house compared to most creatures at the time. Yeah, I wish it was easier to find deck lists from back then, like competitive deck lists, because I, I couldn't really find much evidence that this saw a ton of contemporary play. But yeah, I'm with you that the rate just seems monstrous for back then, right? Just a straight up three mana, three, four that any color can play where the downside is, I mean, like one damage, that's just ignorable. And even Sacrifice of Land, as you're saying, and I think the kind of deck that wants this, that's pretty manageable. And to do it, your opponent had to kill your three, four. Like, so they probably had to pour some resources into it anyway. Like this thing just seems like a house to me. The art direction on here, not so great for me. Uh, what do you, do you want to try to describe this? I mean, not really, but yes, I, I would say just look it up. I honestly, the best way I can describe both. So this is another two arter. Um, oh, right. there's a and B they're both by a guy named Bill Senkowicz. Honestly, the best way I can describe both these is they kind of look like they're generated by stable diffusion. <laughs> like they've got a very kind of <laughs> AI collage abstract look to them. And in the same way that stable diffusion art can be kind of compelling, like that's how I feel about this. Like they're interesting pieces. They're like, okay, I guess I should actually describe them. So the war beasts depicted in this art are, their front halves are like kind of like two-legged metal mastiffs with smokestacks. Their back halves are like a tadpole's tail with a propeller at the end, like a really tiny propeller. <laughs> I don't know. They don't look threatening. <laughs> they don't look that Phyrexian. They certainly don't look like, you know, something that would destroy lands and devastate landscapes. They just look like, I mean, they just look goofy, honestly, Connor. They're just goofy. They are goofy, but I'm a little bit scared at the same time. I, I looked up this artist because I couldn't remember seeing his name on any other card. Uh, and apparently he was a, I mean, he's still alive, but at the time was was a pretty well-known comic artist for Marvel in the 80s and 90s. Um, so this this printing of these two cards, and then I think there's one other pair of cards and alliances that he did must have been pretty exciting for some people. Yeah, I mean, they're technically accomplished and his only other two pieces from alliances, I think are much stronger. Soldevi Steam Beast and Soldevi Steam Beast B. Much, much stronger pieces, I think. Especially the A treatment on the Steam Beast is pretty cool. I mean, I can't argue with the technical execution here. I just think the art itself is, it's just, it just looks goofy, unfortunately. I don't yeah. know. There's no other way to put it. Yeah, it's not doing it for. I think it's the propeller that that is holding me back. It's like the propeller you would get on like a '50s joke propeller beanie hat. Like yep. it's that it, small. It is. Yeah, yeah. Or one of those toys, like the little stick with the propeller on the end, and then you spin it in your hands and it flies up. That's that's the method of propulsion here. Maybe he's holding that between his hind legs. Yeah, maybe. Connor, where do you rate this thing? I have it as an A, which I think is a little strong, just because I like what a beat stick it is. I, as I say that, though, I feel like it's maybe more of a B or a C. I think it is a B for beat stick, because that's kind of that's kind of all it has going for it, right? Yeah, for sure. It's got an, a, both, I don't think we need to read both flavor texts, but they're both kind of similarly heavy-handed to the other one that quoted um, Arkham Dagson, uh, or talked about Arkham Dagson, Phyrexian Boon. It's like adequate. Yeah, a B is fine. All right, that's it for alliances. Let's enter Magic's first block, Mirage block. And we'll start off with Phyrexian Tribute. Two and a B. 
for a sorcery. As an additional cost to cast the spell, sacrifice two creatures, destroy target artifact. And then the flavor text, in your final breath, you still have something to offer Phyrexia. Afari Tales. This is uh, the only targeted black destruction or artifact destruction spell in the game besides Gate to Phyrexia. It somehow manages to be even worse on rate than Gate to Phyrexia, but it is notable as the only targeted black artifact spell. The only problem is it comes with a mandatory three for one, which I think makes it too high a cost to pay in literally any circumstances. It shows a teeny, teeny, tiny bit of play in EDH, most notably uh, in Endrixar, Master Breeder, um, who is a token-making black creature that wants to limit the number of tokens you make. It's like a weird dynamic where if he gets too many, he dies. So there, this is a little bit of an asset, I guess, that you don't create too many throlls with Endrixar. Apart from that, there's really not much you can do with this card to take advantage of it. I'm not a huge fan of the flavor text here, the art. I won't even describe it. It's like vaguely threatening Phyrexian surgery or something. It's it's fine. It's not notable. Like to me, the only really interesting thing about this card is it's a black sorcery that destroys artifacts, which is kind of worth a giggle. But uh, I just, I have this in an F, honestly. It's just a bad card. It's a color pie violation. It's also boring. It's just not a great card. That pretty much sums it up. Like I could only possibly see this like appearing in some super token heavy EDH deck, like you said, with Endrixar maybe. And that's pretty much all I have to say about this card, except that it's on the reserved list for some reason. And like, I cannot figure out why that would be. Well, the po- there was a policy element early on to the reserved list that was like, I think it was like any artifact or any rare that didn't get reprinted within one course. There was some elaborate rule that was just automatic inclusion. So there's a lot hmm. of great ultra powerful cards on the reserved list. And then there's a lot of dogs like this. Well, it won't be missed. No, I don't think so. One other little quirk on this card before we move on. Uh, the printed text is, this is when Magic first developed uh, like the colon templating of like pay a cost, do a thing. So the templating here is sacrifice two creatures, colon, destroy target artifact, which to me kind of reads like an activated ability on the stack, like Lightning Storm, which is this weird card from Cold Snap that's like the only instant or sorcery in the game um, with an activated ability. Uh, sadly though, it's just an additional cost. Doesn't Doesn't even have that going for it. It has literally just just so little going for it. Are you an F as well, by the way, Connor? Yeah, yeah. Let's get it out of here. All right, easy peasy. Okay, another sorcery here with Phyrexian Purge. 2BR for sorcery. This spell costs three life more to cast for each target. Destroy any number of target creatures. And then the flavor text says, only those who have nothing have nothing to fear. And on the original printing, it says, pay three life per target destroy any number of target creatures, which to me is almost more clear than the Oracle text. Maybe that's just in my own mind. I don't have a huge amount to say about this card mechanically. I do want to get into the somewhat dorky art in a little bit, but uh, <laughs> do you have any thoughts on what this card does? Um, I was kind of surprised initially to see that this sees very little commander play. Uh, it's a pretty uh, interesting card in that it's a mass removal spell that isn't a board wipe. Um, so for four mana, you can kill an arbitrary number of creatures there's no targeting restriction here like you can just pick and choose from whatever you need to kill on the board uh and commander you get 40 life to play with like there's a lot of it seems like there's a lot of interesting um potential i think the problem is it's just it's too much life it's hard for it to stack up against toxic deluge in particular but even cards like fire covenant and ashes to ashes um they're just 
better ways to do this. And I don't think many decks need enough of this effect that they have to dig uh, deep enough to play Phyrexian Purge. I did think, well, maybe there's some card in Magic that cares about how much life you've lost this turn, and there's some synergy there. But weirdly, unless I'm doing my uh, Scryfall searching wrong, there's actually only two cards in all of Magic that care about how much life you've lost uh, this turn. Children of Corliss, uh, who just sacks to gain back whatever amount of life you've lost, which is like, I guess, a combo with this, but not a great one. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, and then Greven Predator Captain, uh, who's a commander uh, who ca- who uh, gets plus X plus O, where X is the amount of life you've lost this turn. So you could do something kind of cool there where you like clear a path with this thing and lose a ton of life and swing in for lethal. That's kind of cool, but, yeah, but yeah. very, very narrow. I like that. But yeah, I do. I do think, especially at the time this was printed, you know, Mirage, there there was no commander. Uh, there was no 40 life multiplayer format. So when when you're just 1v1 with 20 life, uh, I agree, three per target is probably just too much. And if you think of this as just a single target removal, uh, which, you know, in many cases it might end up being, you're paying four mana and three life to just destroy a creature, which is not not too great. Yeah, and weirdly, for being so early in Magic's life, like this was already outclassed as a black-red pay-life-to-do-thing spell by Fire Covenant and Ice Age, which is 1BR instant rather than sorcery. As an additional cost, pay X life, and then it deals X damage divided as you choose among any number of target creatures. I think that's just straight better. Um, it's cheaper, it's an instant, um, it's kind of more flexible, might even be less life in total. So somehow, despite this being early on as a gold card in Magic, uh, it gets outclassed. One thing I will say for this card, or maybe for the frame, is damn, did Mirage have some gold frames. Like, I'm just looking how gold this stinking gold frame is, and it looks like a gold ingot sitting on my computer screen. It's just, I really, I like how gold it is. That's not that exciting, but it's just cool. It is extremely gold. I was kind of surprised because I didn't, I don't think back when we started playing in the early 2000s, I don't think I really saw older gold cards like this, at least not many of them. So I was kind of surprised to like see just how gold it is when a lot of older cards, you know, kind of seem a little bit washed out or muddy uh, in their frames compared to, you know, more modern printings. Yeah, not Phyrexian Purge. Do you want to talk about the art uh, and the flavor text? Like, I feel like we're on a run of disappointing art and flavor text here. Uh, we are. So the, the art here is basically a, a skeleton kind of hanging by his arms, his elbows, from a couple of candlesticks. And th- that's it. It's just it's just one skeleton hanging from some candlesticks against like a pink background. I have no idea what this has to do with Phyrexians. I don't know why this skeleton has a big spiky crown on his head and about <laughs> 80 bangles on each of his arms. I don't know why there's only one skeleton when this destroys any number of creatures. And it's called a purge. And it's called a purge of uh, uh, this one guy, I guess, who died a long time ago based on this being like a clean skeleton. Uh, so a lot of a lot of questions about this art. Yeah, it's kind of like a lot of the other Phyrexian arts we've seen are like genuinely pretty unsettling this one is i mean honestly it's kind of like something you could put in like a children's scary story like it's not even that scary yeah just a skelly man just a just a skelly man hang and he's he's not even a dynamic skelly man he's he's hanging because he's been (laughs) purged yeah and then the flavor text just to remind everyone because i'm sure it was erased from your memory banks as soon as connor read it is only those who have nothing have nothing to fear i mean that again is just a snoozer to me like this sure (laughs) That's just bad. That could apply to like any evil card in the history of magic. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I had this at a C, but I'm actually I'm like all the way down to an E now. Like this is this card is super lame. Oof. Well, now I'm waffling between a D and an F. I feel like I I reserve E for the strange cards that should be an F, but there's some redeeming hmm. quality that brings them up to an E. Huh. <laughs> I don't know why I have that, but I feel like I feel like D. You know, it's not quite an unplayable F, but it's bad enough that it can't go higher than D. All right, I dig it. Let's talk about Phyrexian Dreadnought. One mana. That's right, one mana for a artifact creature, Phyrexian Dreadnought. It is a 12-12 Trampler. When Phyrexian Dreadnought enters the battlefield, sacrifice it, unless you sacrifice any number of creatures with total power 12 or greater. So one mana, 12-12, but you got to sack 12 power of creatures to keep them around. All right, this, like the Devourer, even more than the Devourer, is the engine of a million cool combos throughout the entire history of Magic. That goes from simple combos like Stifle or Torpor Orb that turn off uh, triggered abilities or activated abilities. That goes for Lazav and Eldrazi Mimic and any number of things that steal power and toughness. Salvala, Momentous Fall, Fling, all kinds of cards that care about power and can use it to do things. Wall of Blood, Warstorm Surge. There are so many, so many cards um, that this interacts with. And that has been true for decades. Um, you can go back to 2001. I found a wonderful Star City Games article talking about using this before EDH in a multiplayer game with Reigns of Power um, to swap boards with your opponent, um, take all their creatures, play a Phyrexian Devourer, eat all their creatures, keep your Dreadnought, uh, keep your Dreadnought, and then take your creatures back. Like there are so <laughs> many, awesome. so many things. Isn't that amazing? There's so many cool things you can do with Phyrexian Dreadnought. I think like in terms of just sheer mechanical coolness i think this is the coolest card in the whole episode i, I just love this card and also just the cool factor of reading it one mana 12 troll trample like that is just super cool in a way that only a magic card can be right like only when you've played magic and you've gotten the sense that what these numbers mean and how these numbers are meant to relate can you sort of experience the aesthetic coolness like there's an aesthetic coolness of one and 12 next to each other here just an incredible card yeah, yeah, this this thing is amazing. And especially at the time that it was printed, uh when this was the biggest creature in Magic at 1212, uh it must have been <laughs> really? pretty <laughs> really. It must have been amazing. pretty mind-boggling to, you know, see those stats at all and then also to see them appear on a one mana creature. So the next biggest creature at the time was Polar Kraken, which was an 11 mana 11/11 from Ice Age, so almost there but not quite and also 11 mana instead of one. Um, and the raw power of this Dreadnought was even crazier when you looked at other artifact creatures that had been printed up until now, uh, now being 1996. The next biggest was Colossus of Sardia, which was a 9-mana 9-9 trampler that could only untap uh, if you paid 9 mana during your upkeep. Um, that was reprinted in 10th edition for some reason. Uh, so, so when you look at Colossus of Sardia and compare it to Phyrexian Dreadnought, it's, uh, it must've been pretty mind boggling and a, a pretty cool card to see back in the day. The Dreadnought, you mentioned some of the like really cool, uh, more modern combos that the Dreadnought can be involved with. Uh, but this was actually heavily abused in early 2000s vintage, uh, using a card from Alpha called Illusionary Mask. 
which I got to open up here to read the text. Um, there's so kind of should a whole, we even read it or should we just whole saga? It? I probably should read it because it's, it is a huge mess. Well, let me, let me finish the dreadnought thought and then I'll, maybe we can have a little illusionary mask tangent. But uh, basically you'd use illusionary mask to put the dreadnought into play face down for one or more mana. It would only flip face up when it became tapped or took damage or became targeted, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Just if it would assign or deal damage, be dealt damage or become tapped. So you would attack with the Dreadnought. It would become tapped. It would flip over and suddenly be a 12-12 Trampler that you'd played potentially on turn one with Dark Ritual and the Illusionary Mask. Uh, And you'd have a (laughs) 12-12 coming out of nowhere. Um, When he flips... The enter the battlefield effect does not trigger, so you're good. You don't have to sacrifice anything, and you win the game. That is so cool. <laughs> it, it is so I mean, cool. Even, and even today, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So this uh, the the mask knot deck, as it was called uh, back then, was a, a major part of early 2000s vintage scene. So I do want to just read. Maybe I'll just read the original printing of Illusionary Mask and leave it uh, in its just like baffling majesty. Illusionary Mask from Alpha. Two mana for a poly artifact. X. You can summon a creature face down so opponent doesn't know what it is. <laughs> the X cost can be any amount of mana, even zero. It serves to hide the true casting cost of the creature, which you still have to spend. As soon as a face down creature receives damage, deals damage, or is tapped, you must turn it face up. <laughs> I just love everything about that. Uh, <laughs> you, you can see why the rules people were struggling like imagine <laughs> trying to figure out all the corner cases involved with this card yep yep so i'll i'll leave the illusionary mask discussion there but uh that card with dreadnought is just incredible it's actually kind of worth looking up um like the 30th anniversary edition as well if you're looking at some of these images just to see how small the font has to be <laughs> To fit into a modern card frame. Explanation in modern Oracle text is even more complicated, but you know, it's it's clear. It it makes sense, but it it is a lot to digest. I think it's one of those weird ones where kind of the alpha one is clear because it's not trying to work within the rules. <laughs> Making it work within the rules takes a lot of text. Um, speaking of the rules, this is another one like our uh, Phyrexian Devourer from earlier that received a joyless errata. So in 1999, um, this was errata temporarily so that you had to pay the cost before it even entered the battlefield, just to prevent any possible shenanigans. Before that, wizards tried to rein in shenanigans with, honestly, interactions I don't even understand with things called series and batches that used to exist in Magic Rules um, to prevent you doing cool things with this, with like Altar of Dementia. Like, it really seems like back then, like, A, wizards was determined to prevent you doing cool things with cards that seem sort of obviously designed to be abused. And B, wizards was very comfortable with like, quote unquote, spirit of the card, functional power level errata back then like it's really alien now like wizards doesn't mess with cards except for alchemy um they're either banned or they're not banned um and they live with their mistakes but back then wizards was just like yeah phyrexian dreadnought does whatever we need it to do and i'm glad that we moved away from that like magic should be about finding loopholes that's that's half the fun and i mean imagine imagine trying to actually keep up with those rules in 1999 right if you're not actually If you're not actually on the tournament scene or like friends with a judge, like how would you even find out about that errata? That's a great point. You'd have to like call Wizards customer service or buy every issue of the Duelist or something. Like it would be very, very hard. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, like a lot of this just happened in in Usenet or something. Like I genuinely don't know how you keep up with it. One more thing before we get to ratings. Uh, There's a tragedy here that this is on uh, the reserved list. This is such a cool card. I would love to see this card in modern, maybe even in standard. Like I feel like this card could do some really fun, interesting things in a lot of environments if it was allowed to 
um, be free to play. That is a tragedy. And it has actually affected its price in a way that is not true of Phyrexia Devourer. <laughs> yeah, or uh, Phyrexian uh, Tribute. Yeah. Well, before we move on to the ratings, I do want to call out the art here, which is oh, just amazing, incredible. It is so sick. It, the the Dreadnought is basically uh, this massive mechanical worm, almost a like worm coil engine vibes, covered in spikes. Uh, if you look really closely in the art, you can see, I guess, uh, a wizard trying to cast a fireball at this massive dreadnought. Obviously, it's not going to work for that tiny little wizard, but it's, I mean, this is just so cool. And it, it feels like this this must have served as an inspiration artistically for a lot of future Phyrexians. I love that you said that, because to me, this is with Gate to Phyrexia and Priest of Yawgmoth. Um, one of the cards that really kind of nails what we now think of as Phyrexia in a way that's a little more muddled in Phyrexian Purge or even Phyrexian Tribute or the War Beast. Like this is this is what Phyrexia still looks like, maybe more than any other card we've talked about. Also, Pete Venters, who uh, has come up a lot in this episode for all of his <laughs> Phyrexian goodness, is the only Magic the Gathering artist that we've met in person at the Ravnica pre-release. <laughs> Yeah, wow. I wish I'd had a Phyrexian Dreadnought for him to sign. Oh, man. All right, Connor, I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm not going to dance around it anymore. This is an easy S rating for me. Yep, yep. It's got to be an S. Firing on every single cylinder. All right. It's Going to any other card after that almost feels like a letdown. But <laughs> It's not fair to whatever has to come next. It really isn't. But we have to move on to Phyrexian Vault. This is a three-mana artifact. You can pay two mana and tap it and sacrifice a creature to draw a card. Flavor text says, the secrets of Phyrexia are expensive. You will pay in brass and bone, steel and sinew, Kervek. Uh, and actually, the oracle text and printing are exactly the same here. Woo! So Phyrexian Vault feels, at least my first reaction to it was, this is kind of janky by today's standards, where you know we live in a, a Reckoner Bankbuster kind of world. And especially when you think about this in terms of Magic's early days where things like creature tokens weren't really much of a thing. You couldn't, you know, crank out a whole bunch of 1-1s to sacrifice to your vault. You're paying a total of five mana to draw your first card off of this vault um, and then sacking creatures every time you want to do that. This is essentially kind of a Phyrexian-flavored Jayemde Tome, which is a card from an artifact from Alpha um, that was reprinted in Magic 2013, Day uh, Tome costs four mana to play and four mana to tap to draw a card, uh, which is quite a bit more than Phyrexian Vault. And then you've got this Phyrexian spin on it here where it you save on the mana, it costs less to play it and less to activate it, but you have to sacrifice a creature, uh, which is kind of a cool flavor tie in there. But what, what do you think about this card, especially like its power level compared to similar artifacts that, you know, can get you consistent card draw? Yeah, I think even back then, I'm probably taking the Tome. The flexibility of the Tome and the fact that the Tome gets you ahead in cards, right? This card doesn't, particularly back then when there's not really token makers. This thing just leaves you card neutral and behind on mana. Like, yes, it's cheaper to activate, but now you need to cast the thing you drew and you paid for the creature you sacked. So I think this card is cool and interesting. Probably even back then, not very good. I think the thing that kills this most today is the tap which feels honestly kind of mean to me when you have to put mana into it anyway. It, it, this could just be two sack a creature draw a card. And I think it would be fair enough. Interestingly though, there aren't 
like that many definitively better cards. I'll link a Scryfall search that I believe includes all like sack a creature, draw a card effects. Um, the only thing that's strictly better um, or that is the card I just described is Thalid Soothsayer, uh, who's a four mana, I can't remember the stat line, four mana creature that's two and sack creature draw a card. I think the most interesting parallel actually is a card called Relic Vile from Zendikar Rising, which is exactly this card, three mana, two tap, sack creature, draw a card, but it's got a blood artist ability tacked on that's only active if you control a cleric. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting spin on this card. And it shows this card is not totally beyond the realm of playability today, I guess. Like they can print a bad, a bad uh, uncommon today that does something similar. That's a good point. Like other than Reckoner Bankbuster, I couldn't really find anything that much, much better than this even today. Yeah, I think Wizards doesn't want to put like an un, you know, I don't think Wizards would ever want to do a like no mana, no tap version of this. Right. Um, I, now I'm worried they have and I'm just forgetting it, but because it's too dangerous an engine, right? So I think there's always got to be some external kind of limiting cost on this. So I don't think this is totally useless, but I, I think it's pretty close for today's standard or, you know, today. It does yeah. show up in 1,100 decks on EDH rec, which is, it's not nothing. It's not a lot, but it is seeing some play. Yeah. One other thing to mention about the time this was printed at is that there was damage on the stack. Uh, that meant that you could have your creature that's getting blocked or blocking creature deal its combat damage and then sacrifice it to the Phyrexian Vault and you get the damage and the card, uh, which is not the case anymore. Um, so that does make this a little bit better. Yeah, I actually don't know. Like, I think the stack was being invented around this time. I don't know if it had yet been invented. So so I wonder, like... Maybe damage was not on this stack back then. Yeah, I don't know. One other thing I like about this card is I love this old school art. Like, it's not my favorite. I wouldn't, like, get a print on my wall. But it looks like the cover of, like, an old AD&D module to me. You know, it's got this kind of, like... Oh, it does technical skill but also sort of emotionless quality like both the figures are in motion and yet they don't appear to be like in a kind of a still photograph kind of way like it's a it's a quirky piece of art and i I like looking at it uh nothing nothing really forensic about it other than sort of a machine yeah it's uh we're still definitely a little bit confused on what a phyrexian is at this point in magic yeah uh speaking of confusion about phyrexians i think we both found the same uh usenet thread that said you could replace the word phyrexian with useless on every card and it would be a good signpost yeah um <laughs> And honestly, if you talk, look at all the cards we've talked about so far with the tools that are available back then that made like Dreadnought and Devourer hard to break, they're not, they're not far gone. Like Gate to Phyrexia, Phyrexian Gremlins, Phyrexian Boon, Phyrexian Devourer, Phyrexian Portal, the War Beast, the Tribute, the Purge, the Dreadnought, and this, like none of these cards are exactly uh, super strong. And many of them are sort of actively useless. It's true. If, if only, if only that, that guy knew what would what would come for the dreadnought that's right and and for the phyrexians i think they've leveled up a bit since yeah then. <laughs> just a little bit uh rating wise i have this at just like a b it's like a solid interesting card it's not it doesn't ride as to the heights of dreadnought but i think it's a cool card yeah yeah I've, I've got it at a b too it seems fine bomb okay moving into visions now with phyrexian marauder phyrexian marauder is x yes x um, very novel for this time. Phyrexian Marauder is X for an artifact creature, Phyrexian Construct, zero, zero. It enters the battlefield with X plus one, plus one counters. It can't block and it can't attack unless you pay one for each plus one, plus one counter on it. Okay, so the first observation is obviously X mana artifact creatures have come a very, very, very long way since then. Uh, Stone, Co- Stone Coil Serpent, this card is not. And yet... This card, despite being obviously terrible, 
did see a good amount of legacy play for a short burst of time. Now that is not due to any intrinsic virtue of this card. This saw play in the first Flash Hulk deck. So Flash Hulk is a older archetype in Legacy and I think maybe vintage for a while. And the way Flash Hulk works is you use Flash, which is one into you, put a creature into play and then sack it, to Flash in Protean Hulk, uh, which is a Ragnarok card that lets you pull any number of creature cards from your deck onto the battlefield with total mana value six or less. And because this has a mana value of X, its mana value is zero, which means you can pull all of the Phyrexian Marauders out of your deck. And so what you do is you pull four of these out, four shifting walls, which are an X wall that also, yeah, just costs X and therefore has a mana value of zero. And then four Disciples of the Vault. Disciple of the Vault is Blood Artist, but for artifacts. So every time an artifact dies, um, your opponent loses one life, you gain one life. So putting all that together, you flash in the Hulk, Hulk dies, you get uh, four Disciples of the Vault, four Phyrexian Marauders, four Shifting Walls. The Marauders and Shifting Walls all die due to state-based actions. They all have zero power. They trigger each one, each Disciple of the Vault. So you got four Vaults, four of these guys. So you dome your opponent for, what is that? Eight? 32 damage uh, all in one go. And this deck actually, at the time it came out, back in, I want to say, 2007, was capable of a turn zero kill. That is, on the draw in your opponent's upkeep, you start the game with Gemstone Cavern and Spirit Guides, you exile them, you flash something in on your opponent's upkeep, and you win before they take their first turn. So that's a lot. Um, It's... I'm going deep on it because honestly, there's not a whole lot else you could say about the Phyrexian Marauder. It's an obviously terrible card, but I do love that this absolutely terrible card saw a really good amount of legacy play for a while um, as a broken combo card. That is delightful because I did not see any of that potential in it when I was looking at this terrible card. Yeah, what's your assessment of this card, Connor? (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, I think an assessment from 1997 on... Uh, Usenet by Rohan118 said it best. He said, Incidentally, I tried using the Phyrexian Marauder in my deck as an experiment, and I've come to the conclusion that it's the worst card in the whole game. Uh, <laughs> that, that, was, that was my initial take on it, too. I mean, it's a it's X mana, which I guess potentially means later in the game you can have it be a big creature, but it can't block. And then every time you attack, you need to pay one mana for every counter on it. That is just bad it's really bad <laughs> but that that same usenet thread um had a lot of other interesting stuff to say about the marauder there it seemed like there was kind of a surprising amount of confusion back when this was printed about whether the cost of attacking here which the, the card says it cannot attack unless you pay one for each plus one plus one counter on it uh, but there was a lot of confusion about whether the cost of attacking is always the amount that you paid for x initially or the number of counters that are currently on the Marauder. So if you added some counters later on somehow, or if they were removed in some way, then would you pay what you paid for X or pay for the number of counters? And that was really interesting to me because it this is one of the few examples where it seems like the car text is very, very clear that it's just one for each counter currently on it. But I think that really yeah, is... Yeah, weird. It seems totally unambiguous today. Yeah, but I, I think that really illustrates like the maybe fluidity of the rules back then and that you know, there was just, there was, I guess, less of a sense that the card could be completely trusted to cover uh. every rule situation that might come up. Yeah, that's all I got on this. <laughs> it seems to, bad card. I don't like the art with this vaguely mechanical dog thing. Yeah, that that Flash Hulk combo is super cool. But <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it, I mean, to be honest, even then, it's not like the Marauder is intrinsic. 
remotely necessary, right? It just needed it needed an X creature that could die. Right. So it's, it's not, not even the Marauder. Yeah. It's just the Yeah, X. I mean yeah, if you today you would just use Stone Coil Serpent, right? You'd never use the Marauder. Yeah. So I had this at a very generous B because Flash Hulk is a cool deck. I, I think that's insanity though. Yeah, I don't like I don't think the Marauder deserves credit for, <laughs> for Flash Hulk. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. That's 90% on the Hulk, the Flash, and the Disciple of the Vault. Right. I've I've got this at an E. I, I actually I'm I'm not sure why I didn't have this at an F at first. I guess E it it's almost so interestingly bad to me that it it can't be an F. Like it needs some kind of distinction. Yeah, it fits your special E grade of like not so bad and boring that it's an F, but you know, something has saved it from the worst of all grades. Yeah, so I go with E. All right, next up, we've got Phyrexian Walker. This is a zero mana artifact creature, a zero three. And that's it. The flavor text is pretty great. It says, I have heard terrible tales of black rains, ashen fields, and metal that screams. I have consoled myself that the tales were a myth of some fevered mind. But today I saw a walker, and now I fear the truth. Kasib Ibn Naji letters. Um, great flavor text that uh, Lightgate to Phyrexia does an amazing job of sort of setting the scene of what Phyrexia is like as a plane at a time when, you know, there was not a very clear picture of that probably for most players. Um, and the Walker itself is is somewhat interesting as a card that made, it looks like an occasional appearance uh, in an older deck called Fruity Pebbles back in the day. Uh, the idea of Fruity Pebbles is you would get a Enduring Renewal and a Goblin Bombardment out on the field. Enduring Removal is uh, a white enchantment that, in relevant part here, says whenever a creature is put into your graveyard from play, return it to your hand. Goblin Bombardment lets you sack a creature to deal one damage to any target. Phyrexian Walker is a zero-mana artifact creature. So you get your Enduring Renewal out, you get your Goblin Bombardment, uh, you sack the walker to Goblin Bombardment to deal one damage. It goes back to your hand with Enduring Renewal, uh, and you keep doing that over and over and over until your opponent's dead. So cool that this is part of an infinite combo, but it, you know, just like Phyrexian Marauder, the only relevant thing about the walker to that combo is that it costs zero mana. So I'm not sure it deserves the credit. Yeah, this is a this is a one of those cards that's kind of cool. I don't have a ton to say about it. It's just you know zero mana things I think are always cool. Um, this is like the partner to Ornithopter, right? Um, I have in my notes that, uh, if Urza had Ornithopter and the Phyrexians had this Walker, like, I think that's why Urza won the war. Like there's clearly <laughs> some edge Urza had there where he yep. knew it was worth losing a toughness to gain flying. Uh, and so this card doesn't have the kind of storied history, uh, that Ornithopter does of, you know, showing up in combos, but also carrying equipment and doing all kinds of broken degenerate things. Other than that, I mean, I think this is a fun card. It's a cool card has some combo potential. It's got good art. It's got good flavor text. It's a, it's a solid card. Uh, I also found, uh, honestly, I didn't have that much to say about this. There was a Usenet user called Canticle, who for some reason of all the cards we talked about, took it upon himself to review this card in detail for standard, sealed, and Mirage block constructed, and to write a little piece of accompanying fiction. Uh, so I'll link that. Uh, this obviously spoke to somebody. I'll say for me, it's like, this card's fine. It's a B for me. That That's awesome. I, I have to imagine it was the flavor text that maybe push canticle in that direction yeah i like this flavor text yeah this is a b for me too i mean like it doesn't do anything on its own so it's a little bit hard to get too excited about it 
All right, that's it for Visions. Our last set of this episode, Weatherlight. Uh, first up, I want to talk about a pair of cards, Gallobraid and Morinfen, who uh, I think go together and you'll see why. So Gallobraid first. So Gallobraid is 3BB for a legendary creature, Phyrexian Horror. He's a 5-5 five, five with Trample and Cumulative Upkeep, pay one life. And if you're not familiar with Cumulative Upkeep, the way it works is at the beginning of your upkeep, put an age counter on this permanent then sacrifice it unless you pay its upkeep cost for each age counter on it. So first upkeep will cost you one, then two, then three, then four, and so on. And then it's flavor text. If its skin looks like stone, it is only to match its heart. Crovax. And then we have Galibraid's brother, Morinfen. Morinfen is 3BB for a 5-4 legendary creature for Exine Horror with flying and cumulative upkeep, pay one life. So very much mirror images of each other. One is a five mana five four. One is a five mana five five. One has flying. The other has trample. Both have cumulative upkeep. Pay one life. Oh, and I should say the flavor text on Morin Fen. I looked into its eyes, and its soul was so empty. I saw no reflection, no light there. Krovox. Uh, I can't help but read these like that because <laughs> it's so heavy handed. There's that no was other way. So to read dramatic. It. I can't say a ton about these cards mechanically, but Connor, I think you have some stuff to say about where these fit into the story of Weatherlight. Just just a little bit. So you said earlier that these two are kind of brothers. They literally are brothers in the lore. So if you'll remember where we left off with, with Yogmoth and the Brothers War, about 4,000 years after that, Yogmoth is ready to rock again, and he's getting ready to invade Dominaria. Um, so the set that we're in with Galibraid and Morinfen Weatherlight, story-wise, is following a flying ship of the same name, Weatherlight, on its journeys to uh, basically assemble this powerful weapon known as the Legacy uh, with the goal of destroying Yogmoth once and for all. Um, so that's kind of the, the story backdrop of Weatherlight. And there's a whole lot more to it than that that we're not going to get into here. So Krovax, who um, Austin delightfully quoted in the flavor text here, was a warrior serving on the Weatherlight. Uh, who was eventually later on in the story corrupted by Yogmoth through a series of events too convoluted to repeat here. But the TLDR of, <laughs> with Morin Fed and Galibraid, uh is that these two brothers were ravaging Krovax's homeland, uh, which was Urborg, uh, and they were for some reason targeting his family estate specifically, I guess because Yogmoth wanted to get under Krovax's skin and eventually <laughs> corrupt him or something. So the Weatherlight turns around and heads to Urborg to try to stop Mornfen and Galibraid, who uh, by this point have killed Krovax's whole family. There's a big fight. Not cool. Not cool. There's a big fight between the crew of the Weatherlight and Mornfen and Galibraid. Uh, these two brothers killed Rofelos, who I guess was a crew member on the Weatherlight. Uh, and then eventually they were defeated by the angel Selenia. So that's as deep into the Morinfen and Galibraid lore as we're going to get. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're they're cool cards. I've had a copy of Galibraid forever. No idea where I got it or when or why I have it, but he's just been kicking around in a binder for well over a decade now. And it was it was gratifying to to finally know more about his backstory. It feels like the kind of card you get in one of those like two dollar grab bags at the checkout counter at the LGS. You know what I mean? I think it was probably exactly that. You know, one in four contains a rare. Unfortunately, the rare is Galibrate. <laughs> I think that may have been exactly where my Galibrate came from. I think if Juzam Jin hadn't existed, Juzam Jin being a four mana five, five from Arabian Nights who deals one damage to you on your upkeep. 
I think these guys would have looked pretty impressive back in the day. Like there was nothing else that came close on rate. Like five mana for a five, five today is kind of like just the base case. But at this point, there really wasn't anything in that territory except Juzam Jin, and there wouldn't be anything in that territory without a massive downside until like at least Onslaught's Grinning Demon. And I would argue we didn't really see like a true no downside at all black five something beater until like Halo Hunter and really like Blood Gift Demon. Like it's only in the last five or 10 years that Wizards started giving upsides with stats like this. You know, 20 something years ago, the downside is not that severe. Um, for what are some pretty big, uh, pretty big bad creatures, especially Morinfen. Uh, Morinfen is, I think, quite a beater for five mana in this context. I'm not even sure that five mana five five is like the fair rate anymore. You look at like Phyrexian Obliterator, which was originally printed in New Phyrexian in 2011, just got reprinted in All Will Be One. That's a four mana five five with a major upside. So <laughs> there's no no fair comparison between Galibrade, Phyrexian, and Obliterator, but it really shows how far we've come. It's a sidebar, but I would say Obliterator's downside is the black, 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 black casting cost. Like that's pretty restrictive. Yeah, but I mean, like at least in in standard right now, you know, like mono black is a perfectly viable archetype. So even that is a pretty limited mm-hmm. downside, especially compared to cumulative upkeep one life. Yeah, the cumulative upkeep one life thing is interesting because it sounds really dire, but like if you actually crunch the numbers, it's not as bad as it seems. So for example, let's just assume when you cast this, you and your opponent both have 20 life just to keep the math simple. The next turn cycle, you go to 19, your opponent goes to 15 if they're taking a hit off more in Fen. Turn three after casting, uh, you go to 17, your opponent goes to 10. Then you go to 14 and they go to five. And I think you can see where this is going. The next turn you go to 10 and they go to dead. So while the cumulative upkeep pay one life like reads really bad, um, it doesn't take that many unobstructed hits for these to just close out the game. So I, I have no idea if these were played in a contemporary context. If they were, I couldn't find any reference, but they don't seem totally indefensible um, back in 1997. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think they're crazy bad i actually noticed that there i would i would be really really amazed if there was any kind of conscious parallel here but of course we've we've been reviewing champions and betrayers of kamigawa or cube set reviews of every card in those sets uh, and champions features two onis with the same mana cost as these brothers both of them have a 5-4 stat line. Both of them have keyworded evasion abilities. And both of them have an upkeep cost, which is... Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> pretty pretty similar to Galibrade and Mornfed. Uh, but you know, who, who knows if there was any thought given the, to these two when those Onis were printed. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I wondered about a parallel there too. I mean, it seems like a real stretch. Against that, I will say, I mean, maybe I should ask Mark Rosewater on Blog Talk. I will say Mark Rosewater was the architect of the Weatherlight Saga plotline. He loves self-referential things. He was lead designer, I believe, on Champions of Kamigawa. Like maybe Mark Rosewater snuck a weird reference or a very obscure reference to Galibrate and Morinfen in there because it tickled tickled him. That that doesn't seem beyond belief. It, it doesn't seem impossible. Uh, so where what are your ratings on these uh, these two gentlemen? Um, I mean, as as much as I love my own Gallobraid sitting in my binder, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I can't in good faith give either of these better than a D. Yeah, that's pretty fair. I I had a D for Morinfen and an E for Gallobraid. Like if I if I had to play one, I would definitely play Morinfen over Gallobraid. Yeah, which which raises a great point. When we first looked at these cards, uh, we had briefly discussed the idea of each of us building a commander deck themed around 
each of these two brothers. <laughs> I mean, we're brothers, they're brothers. It's it's so perfect. I don't know what those decks would look like, but I, I love the, the idea of this jank battle. I think that's the problem. It's like, how do you build around these two? They're just like big dorks. It's tough. All right. Well, I think this uh, this priceless quote from the fandom page for Galibrain Mornfen, which does exist, is, is the best way to leave these two. Morinfen had wings, while his brother had not. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Tolkien. <laughs> it's That's not going to get better right there. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our final Phyrexian card. Phyrexian Furnace. This is a one-mana artifact. Tap, exile the bottom card of target player's graveyard. Pay one mana, sacrifice Phyrexian Furnace, Exile target card from a graveyard. Draw a card. So very first thing that jumped out at me about this card, other than the the, the art, which we'll get to, um, <laughs> is, is the fact that the graveyard exiling ability must target the bottom card of target player's graveyard, uh, which was it's something I, I don't think we ever see at all in modern magic. Uh, have like anything having to do with the order of cards in the graveyard. Um, but that was actually kind of a mechanical theme in Weatherlight. Um, Weatherlight, uh, Mark Rosewater has said that this was a first set where the graveyard was strongly mechanically relevant, where cards actually cared about what was happening in the graveyard, how many cards of types you had in the graveyard, I guess what the order of cards was. Uh, and there's actually sort of a graveyard order matters theme to the set. There are about a dozen cards in Weatherlight that care about the top or bottom card of a graveyard that might, you know, reanimate a creature, the top creature of your graveyard, uh, or, you know, do something else to that effect, which was super interesting to me. I'd never thought of the graveyard as something where order whatever matter. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a, a relatively short-lived experiment because it created it creates something you have to care about that's fiddly and annoying and that rarely matters and but you theoretically have to care about it in every game, right? It's like if there's any chance someone's playing any of these graveyard order matters cards, now all of a sudden you can go from never caring about the order of your graveyard to it mattering quite a bit. I'm caring about the order of your graveyard is actually kind of obnoxious. You know, if a lot of things die at once, you have to like think about how things get stacked. A lot of people like to rearrange and fiddle with their graveyard. You know, if you're trying to, I don't know, count things for a Tarmogoyf or look how many things you can exile, um, right. how many instants you can exile with a uh, thing that exiles instants. I love that card. Help. What is it? <laughs> I don't know. There's so many of these things. Ah, <laughs> doesn't matter. If you're trying to do uh, any number of things that like care about the contents of your graveyard, keeping the order the same consistently is like honestly a real pain in the butt. Uh, and so I think they've pretty aggressively curtailed this design space. And actually, there's a funny exchange on Blogatog where some fan is asking Mark Rosewater, like, how could you print this card that chooses a random thing from a graveyard? That's really hard to do with cards that care about the order of card in the graveyard. And Mark Rosewater's answer was basically, yeah, we, we're just not going to carry that, carry water for that anymore. Uh, for that effect. Yeah, this card has spawned a whole um, kind of bloodline. It starts with Phyrexian Furnace, and then it continues with much better cards like Relic of Progenitus, Scrabbling Claws, Soul Guide Lantern, Lantern of the Lost. Like there's a whole bunch of these one mana mess with the graveyard slash graveyard hate artifacts uh, that also cantrip or replace themselves. But this is the first. This is the beginning of that legacy. When it was around, it actually was pretty viable. This saw play in Standard back in 1998. It saw play in Vintage. 
I saw play in extended all the way until it rotated out. I couldn't find evidence of it seeing play in legacy, but I assume it did if it saw play in so many other formats at the time. So while this card doesn't read that impressive today, like back when it was the only game in town, this showed up a lot. It was the best graveyard hate for quite a while. I really wondered reading this, like how often that the fact that it's the bottom card would be relevant and or just frustrating playing back in the day. Like this, this did appear in like some sideboards from what I can tell in, in Usenet posts, like some people were using the furnace as a way to deal with uh, graveyards. And I, I feel like it would have just been really frustrating to only be able to deal with the graveyard from the bottom up. It's kind of interesting to contrast it with like Relic of Progenitus, right? So Relic of Progenitus uh, is one tap target player exiles a card from their graveyard. And then one, exile it, exile all graveyards, draw a card. It's interesting to contrast the first ability, right? Because Relic of Progenitus, I think it's probably worse because your opponent gets to choose. Like in most circumstances, I guess I'd rather exile the oldest thing in their graveyard than they just straight up get to choose, right? (laughs) It's a little better. Yeah. But then you look at like Unlicensed Hearse from Streets of New Capenna, which exiles two cards at a time. You get to choose what both of those are. And yeah. then its power and toughness grows as you're doing the exile. Like this looks pretty rough. Yeah, yeah, that's all very true. Uh, one other cool legacy of this card before we get to the truly extraordinary art is that this and Mindstone from the same set are the first true cantrip on death artifacts ever printed in Magic. Um, so in Ice Age, there were a handful of artifacts that were slow trips, as they're sometimes called, meaning they draw a card at the beginning of the next upkeep. But this is the first artifact to go to the graveyard and immediately replace uh, itself. And that, of course, has a long history of being degenerate and broken uh, in later cards. So I like seeing that door cracked open here with Phyrexian Furnace. Yeah. So this this really is a, uh, this is the real progenitus that the <laughs> relic is of. That made more sense before I started talking. It totally makes sense. Also, you know uh, for the for. people out there who have troll EDH decks, like I feel like you all should be playing this just as a low cost way to make everybody's life a little bit harder. Yes, this and uh, Phyrexian Portal. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Connor, are you ready? I'm going to make you describe this art. Boy, I'm just going to describe the object in this art because I don't (laughs) know how else to approach it. Uh, You've got kind of a red background with what look like some curtains on the sides of the frame. And then there's just like a bunch of stuff, almost like Phyrexian gremlins, but without the delightful gremlins. There's some guy's hand with a, a ring on it. There's a coiled spring. There's a gear. Uh, there's something that looks very much like a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely looks like an old-timey microphone. <laughs> and that's um, that's the Phyrexian Furnace. There was a pretty amazing... Almost all the Gatherer comments about this card are just riffing on the art. Uh, I think this one from a user called Kryptonite said it best. Looks like a poster for Phyrexian Jazz Concert to me. Live at the Furnace, 7 p.m. every Wednesday, featuring artists such as Vats Domino, Gooey Armstrong, and more. Oh my god, that is so good. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's... uh... (laughs) It's actually, like, really, really funny. The art here is completely inscrutable. Like, you can see the Furnace in the background, but... I guess. Everything else, it's like, I guess these are machine parts and a corpse being drawn into the furnace. I I don't know. It's a really, it's it's pushing its luck in terms of abstraction. (laughs) It's an abstract one. I mean, even the furnace, like the only indication that that's a furnace is that it's red and orange. And I guess the orange part of the background is very, very vaguely flame shaped. 
Right. It's flame shaped in the way that like if you had to make a fire out of construction paper and you had two colors, like that's how this these flames are. <laughs> you you have two colors and forty five seconds to make a fire <laughs> out, of, out of construction paper. Go. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of love it for that. Like, it's obviously not the right art, but it, it is so just bizarre and out of place that I, I have a bit of a soft spot for it. Yeah, Com- completely baffling. Please, please, <laughs> if you've never looked at any of the art on these cards before, please do it now. You won't regret it. Yeah, a lot of them are really worth your time, but if you only look at two, I think it's got to be the Gremlins and the Furnace. Yes. <sighs> All right. So, I, uh, where do you rate this, Connor? Uh, I've got the Furnace at a at a B. I mean, it's it's just not. I, I guess I've been spoiled by more modern cards, but it's just what it does isn't that exciting to me. I have this in an A, uh, bleeding into S for me. It's not quite an S, wow. I, I think, honestly, because of the art. But I, I love the competitive history. I love the way this like not only saw a lot of competitive play itself and was important in many formats, but like created a whole lineage of cards like Relic and Scrabbling Claws that are super relevant to all kinds of formats today. And that all starts right here from this card. I think that's pretty cool. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's, you're, you're persuading me. I think I could come up to an A. All right, let's end on an A. That's a nice note to end the episode on. That is. Well, I hear Vats Domino is going to be opening at the Phyrexian Furnace any minute now, so I think it's time for us to call this episode complete. That's C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, Connor. <laughs> if you enjoyed the show uh and if you listen this far probably you did uh go ahead and subscribe on youtube or your favorite podcast app our uh, release schedule is roughly every two weeks we can be a little intermittent so subscribing helps make sure you don't miss our next episode we've got lots of other fun episodes if you're a new listener um like a review of every single seven plus mana enchantment in the history of magic a review of every four mana red one one uh and of course our ongoing card by card review of original kamigawa block we'd also love to hear your feedback thoughts on the cards we talked about other topics you're interested in seeing us cover uh so comment on reddit or youtube or just email us at clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com and let us know we'll be back next episode probably to continue our kamigawa block review but who knows until then though i'm austin and i'm connor thanks for listening <laughs>